Welcome to Blackbird episode number 64. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to bring to you my interview with Adam Winfield. Adam is a writer living in Canada, originally from England, and I read his piece, Bullshit Job, Don't Zone Out, Go Rogue. It's from way back in 2018, but I think most of it still applies, and actually, it might be even easier today to go rogue than it was in 2018. I wanted to talk to Adam about what bullshit jobs are and what we can do to go rogue in our bullshit jobs if we happen to have one. I know many people say that they love their jobs. I'm one of them. I love the job that I work from day to day. This podcast obviously does not pay my bills. I have a salary, and I enjoy the work that I do. But I'm working for somebody else, and I constantly feel the need and the call to kind of build my own wealth, do my own thing, do something that's fulfilling to me and not to my employer. And so that's kind of what Adam talks about in Going Rogue. And also, you know, to be frank, a lot of the jobs that exist today don't really need to. A lot of them are just make work things that, you know, the human need to feel employed or to feel occupied exists. And a lot of people aren't optimally occupied. I don't have a sponsor for this week's episode, but I do want to remind you about Thad Russell's Renegade University. If you head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash renegade, you'll land right on their front page. At Renegade University, you can take all kinds of classes, and they are hosting several classes a week at this point. The list of classes is always changing. Right now in the catalog, they've got an instructional design for dying, which started a few weeks ago, but you can catch the replay videos and join the live sessions, which are lasting into November of this year. An instructional design for dying is taught by a cancer survivor and hospice volunteer named Thomas Nickel. And basically, he just is getting us ready for the inevitable. Also in the pre-recorded catalog is The War on Beauty in the 21st Century, which Jack the Perfume Nationalist, a former guest on this show, taught last month. I highly recommend that one. Coming soon is going to be the mass media history taught by the great James Corbett, where he's going to talk about the history of the media in America and also, you know, his kind of bread and butter, the history of how the media is used to propagandize the masses. So if those things sound good to you, or if you're just interested in any number of a host of topics, including history, philosophy, a crash course on cryptocurrency from Vin Armani, even a guide to creating your own 3D printed guns, head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash renegade to enroll today. And with that, here is my interview with Adam Winfield. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for your invite. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, so I heard about you on Curtis Yarvin's Gray Mirror. Uh, I think it was on Gray Mirror. Anyway, um, he he linked to one of your one of your articles about bullshit jobs and going rogue. So I wanted to talk to you about that and just kind of riff on that. But before we get started, uh, you said to me before we started recording that this is the very first podcast you've ever done. So congratulations! Yeah. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I'm glad I got to uh, take your flower. I guess. Yeah. Um, why don't you go ahead and kind of introduce yourself? Tell everybody who you are. What you do. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to big myself up. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I guess, a family man, as, as I, as I say nowadays, because I had my, I'm married now. I uh, got married a few years ago. I had uh, my first kid about 18 months ago. So I'm just uh, out here in just east of the Toronto, uh, 
living in a house, you know, with a vegetable garden and uh, doing a job. I'm a, I'm a copywriter. That's how I make my money. Oh, cool. Um, and, but, I, but I do do some, you know, writing on the side, not as much as I would like to, but, you know, I'm always thinking about kind of things to write about and new ideas. And I definitely kind of have been influenced by a lot of people and seemingly come to the kind of same kind of space that you've kind of fallen into somewhat yeah. uh, these past few years. I mean, I think it all started around the time of uh, the election with, with Trump back in like 2015, 2016. I really started mm-hmm. to kind of wake up a little bit and educate myself because I'm not kind of, I'm not a very traditionally educated person. I went to university, but I didn't really do much. Uh, and it wasn't until um, six, seven years ago that I really started reading and educating myself and uh, waking up a little bit to what was going on around me. How did you get into copywriting? That's always been something kind of fascinating to me, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I went to do journalism. I always wanted to be a writer. Ever from the age of about, I would say, nine, ten, I was writing kind of video game reviews and like uh, soccer, mm-hmm. football. Uh, stories just it just kind of came to me it's just something I wanted to do I always used to read like PC gaming magazines and different kind of magazines and I just loved how they wrote things and it was just something I always kind of aspired to so I went to university to do journalism uh, in the British Midlands where I'm from um, kind of uh, got a bit of a sour taste in my mouth uh, about journalism while I was there um, and, it, and it was during the time that Journalism was kind of dying out, and it was when really online media was starting to come in. And this is back in, say, like 2008, 2009. Mm. Uh, so everything was changing very quickly at that time. Like the professors that I had were um, newspaper people, they'd all come from newspaper backgrounds, um, you know, just kind of reporting uh, on local news stories and things like that. And, and mm. they didn't, I don't think they really grasped the idea that that stuff just wasn't really around anymore and, and you couldn't make a living really doing it unless you really wanted to kind of give up your soul and, and not really have a chance to have a, you know, good paying lifestyle. Uh, you had to kind of be a bum just to do something like that uh, and then work 16 hours a day for the mm. privilege or whatever. And I don't think they kind of realised that that was what was happening. I remember actually, uh, just to go on from a bit of a tangent, I remember saying to one of my professors, um, these tablets are going to come out in a few years and they're going to take over newspapers. Like it's going to be a screen that you just look at and read the news on it. And he, and he laughed at me. He said, this is a ridiculous idea. Like newspapers are always going to be around. <laughs> and this, this is only like 12 years ago. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And, and it just changed so quickly. And then, so, okay. Just so I guess to go back to, you, to your question, uh, how did I get into copyright? Is that I just didn't think that journalism was, and I was pretty lazy back then as well. Uh, so I just didn't think that journalism was, was A, something I was really interested in once I realized what was really going on in the, in the industry. And B, I, I didn't, I wasn't willing to put the work and effort in it was required to become a journalist. Yeah. Um, so copywriting was kind of, I moved to London um, after university when I was uh, 21 and I kind of got into PR for a friend of mine who was in recruitment, which, because they'll take, they take journalism, journalism graduates based on your, your you know, being able to write and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and you're obviously talking to journalists. So I just kind of got uh, into that, into PR and then I realized after a few years of working in PR that it was just soul-sucking and deadening and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I just slowly figured out how to be just a copywriter um, and, and extract myself from you know, having to do PR for companies. And now I just do copywriting you know, as a freelancer, just uh, different kind of things, really. I'm, I'm writing resumes for people, for like executives and stuff like that, which is surprisingly kind of lucrative and uh, fruitful endeavor. Uh, and I'll, I'll do kind of freelance blog writing for companies that offer their services, uh, which is something I don't enjoy doing as much. But yeah, uh, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the way that I heard about you was 
Curtis Yarvin, who's a he's a right wing blogger. Are you familiar with him? I do. Yeah, I know. I know Bob Borg. I've known him for quite a while, and I, I didn't know that he'd linked. And I know that I think you mentioned to me that uh, I did an article for the publication I am seventeen seventy six a couple of yes, weeks ago. That's what I know it was. that he had a follow. He had an interview posted with that publication a couple of days later, and maybe that was how you found out. But that's, that's he, what it was. He, he didn't link yeah. to you. I, I found it yeah. through through a link that he posted. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and actually, your resume writing. Uh, Kind of brings us into the topic, I guess. Um, yeah, you wrote this. You wrote this article that was inspired by David Graeber, who's a yes. who's a recently deceased soci or anthropologist who wrote uh, yeah. about bullshit jobs and just sort of the the what like the the dumbing down, I guess, of labor in the latter half of the twentieth century, and then of course, you know, especially now. You mentioned that as a resume writer, like you can, you can always tell when someone's in a bullshit job. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, honestly. Like, I've been doing this for a long time now, coming on about eight years on and off. And I've spoken to pretty much any person you can think of, um, you know, any kind of industry, any kind of profession. And I always kind of pay attention to how that person views themselves in, in how they're talking. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the time, they'll you'll just be able to detect the pain that they're feeling about mm -hmm. the, the work that they do. You know, and and a lot of the time, it's people who are in like these high up positions. You know, someone who's a VP of strategy in a bank or something mm. like that tends to be the people who are. This seem to show the most pain in their voice because I ask. Obviously, part of the job is interviewing them and finding out what they do because I'm I'm trying to present their achievements and present them on paper. And a lot of the time, they're just not really able to give me anything tangible because in reality, they're sitting around not really doing very much other than just paying attention. You know, just sorry, just looking after the people who are who are doing the work. Um, so, but it's not like they're just—they're not just going to say to me, you know. Well, to be honest, Adam, I don't really—I don't really do anything. They have to kind of make up these, you know, these. Uh, they'll say, "Oh, I, I manage the strategic development of the, you know, the banking corporate strategy." It's, 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 you know, it's just this fluff, and I just know that they're telling me that they don't do anything. You just kind of get, you know, after a while, you just kind of figure that out, I guess. Yeah. Would you consider yourself like on the right? Would you consider yourself libertarian or conservative or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do prefer not to, to label myself. I know that sure. sounds pretty pretentious, but um, it's it. Uh, I always remember. Re I'm not sure if you read the book Forty Eight Laws of Power. I can't remember the guy who wrote it. But, uh, um, I've read the Forty Eight Laws of Power, but not the entire yeah. book. Like I've read the yeah. list. I always remember Rule Forty Eight was uh, assume formlessness, uh, and he means basically okay. just don't kind of identify yourself with anything because that's you know as soon as you identify yourself as a as a right wing or as a libertarian or an anarchist or anything like that. You're giving away power to people who um, can attack that ideology. They, mm -hmm. they can attack the ideology as if it's an attack on you. Um, you know, be, just because the tenets of ideology, ideology are established. So you, by aligning yourself with the ideology, you, you, yeah. you open yourself up to those, their criticism. So, so, I mean, I'm certainly like, I, I guess to answer your question and not just kind of dodge around it is, I find myself far more aligned with the people who are, you know, libertarian thinkers and, and more, What's considered, I guess, to be right-wing thinking nowadays. Sure, um, but that's uh, that's as far as I would go in, in labor myself. You know, just uh, but I think now with the way that politics has shifted, we don't even really know what is right and left anymore, and we don't know what is um, yeah. where the spectrum is or anything like that. So I think it's completely almost valueless kind of spectrum. Uh, I think you're right. I think, and I yeah. and I think we're seeing a huge like synthesis between the two, um, or what what were the two. Uh, <clears throat> now there's like a, there's a new line kind of being drawn. I remember like a few years ago, uh, I had a friend or I guess a roommate, she worked for Target, uh, you know, the big real retailer down here. She did like online order fulfillment working in the warehouse in one of their retail 
locations. And she got called in because one of her coworkers was sick. And she was just complaining and complaining, complaining. How can they treat me like this? This is my day off, et cetera, et cetera. And I, being, you know, the good little doctrinaire libertarian, told her, well, that, that you know, I mean, if you don't want to, if you don't want to get called in on your day off, then don't work in a retail job. That, you know, you're it's your employer. You signed your contract. They can treat you however they want. Right. And like, I can't imagine saying anything like that today. I mean, for, for, I mean, I'm not as big of an asshole as I used to be. So that's part of it. So like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't even believe that anymore. Like, yeah, I think that something, and I don't know what it is, has kind of brought all of us, or maybe not all of us, but a lot of us around to this, uh, like David Graeber was calling it a, like a feudalism, managerial feudalism. Yeah. Do you see that? And what do you think has been the cause of it? Of the yeah, sort of I mean, shift? Uh, the shift of of what? Sorry, just just if I'm the shift of this. the shift of like people who once called themselves capitalists, um, yeah. going from uh, their you know their private company, they're your employer, they can do whatever they want. If you don't like it, quit. That kind of thing. To being more sympathetic yeah. of this sort of traditionally left wing um, skepticism of of hierarchy or mm-hmm. of managerialism, I guess. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm fully understanding the question, um, but I, I think that. The, the internet has changed so much, hasn't it? I don't think we can ever lose sight of the fact that the internet has kind of just been this explosion that has opened everything up. Uh, and I know they're trying to lock it down and everything, but I mean, for me personally, it's been just a way to escape from that whole system. Um, and, and now I don't have to identify as anything. I don't, I don't have to be kind of slave to any kind of anything. Um, I can just kind of make my own destiny. I don't I don't really need to rely on anyone because I can always kind of, if, if you know, if one thing says, oh, we don't want to work with you anymore. I can just go and find something else and yeah. just become shapeless. I don't know if I've answered your question at all there, but that was, I guess, my response to it. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what would you, would you agree that, um, would you agree that employers can have like an un, an unjust authority over their employees? Or do you think that just by signing the contract or, or accepting the job, the employee mm. sets themselves up for whatever they get? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you sign a contract, if you do sign a contract, because most people don't read contracts, do they? I don't think sure. people read even an employment contracts. So, and if you sign that contract, I don't see any reason why you can't um, you you can complain when when that contract is kind of you know pulled out and, and shown to you when when you've breached it or whatever. Um, All right. And I'm I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying I read contracts. I'm not saying I read employment contracts you know very well, but. Um, I guess it comes down to integrity as well. Right? Like, what what are you willing to say? Because one one thing um, I always wondered, and, and I know this kind of gets us into uh, you know privilege and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what what you know, I've, I was kind of raised. I had a kind of nice upbringing. Like, I wasn't really expected to to do anything. You know, I didn't really have a proper job, and, and I went to university. I never, I never really had. A, a lot of people would say I've never worked a day in my life. Um, but like someone who goes and works in the Amazon warehouse, they. Uh, what option? The, the argument, I guess, is nowadays without something like Amazon, is what options do they have? Like, I guess, mm-hmm. small town America, the only jobs going are the, the Amazon factory jobs, um, and you, you kind of, uh, you know, you're demeaning yourself by going to, to work in that job and having a robot firing you um, and stuff like that. But it, it, those people say that you know that there are no other options for me, and and I guess the more left wing perspective on that is that. Um, yeah, they're right. We've, we set things up in the way that there are no options, other options for these people. Uh, but I just think that it's a little bit of a defeatist attitude to say mm-hmm. that with with the internet and stuff. And, and you can like move, maybe you can move away from that town. I know, I know this starts to get a little bit controversial, right? But it's you, sometimes you just have to kind of take power over your own destiny a little bit more and uh, 
but it, but it's so hard for me to say because, I, like I said, I was raised in this somewhat privileged uh, upbringing, and I'm, I don't know what it's like for, for someone else. And I'm sounding like a bit of a leftist now. Aren't I? But, um, yeah. Does uh, do you think that everybody who goes to journalism school came from a privileged background? I've heard that. Uh, well, I would say actually that, uh, but where I where I went to school wasn't particularly kind of posh, and I was seemed like I was the kind of most working class person okay. there actually. Yeah. So I'd say most people who go and do journalism are people who have. Uh, but I'm from a very working class background. My dad's in construction. My mum's a housewife. I don't really know how how I got into into that. Um, and I definitely felt like I was kind of outside of the sphere. Like I had a lot of friends and stuff in school. And then when I went to university, I didn't really speak to any of the people because I just mm-hmm. felt like I couldn't relate to them. They were from a different world almost. Um, yeah. Well, let's get into bullshit jobs. What are what are some examples of bullshit jobs other than like chief strategist or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I, I can give you some examples, but I want to start just just kind of take it back a little bit and yeah, maybe yeah. just talk you through kind of my uh, my personal um journey here on this bullshit jobs thing as, as I mentioned to you earlier I moved I moved to London I did PR and I started to realize that um everything in I because I always thought that London was kind of this place where people went and did important things um you know and I moved down there and it took me a while but eventually it kind of dawned on me that the, the men who were walking around in, in you know expensive suits they were just kind of uh, part of the financial financialization of the economy like it was it was people who weren't really contributing anything to society other than, you know, making the numbers on the screen go up or selling a product, that, you know, through PR or Martin that, that, would, that would five years later be forgotten about. And, and it was just this whole kind of charade where people were there to kind of have a good time and socialize and network. But when they were actually going to do their jobs, they weren't really, they weren't really doing anything meaningful. Um, so I guess, you know, PR, uh, financial services, uh, HR, um, I know that's HR is kind of a pervasive thing that all companies have, mm-hmm. uh, not just in London, but that's another one where I look at it and I'm thinking, you know, if we didn't have these HR people, um, what would happen to the company? Like, uh, would would people just be kind of running around going wild, you know, sexual harassment going on everywhere? Um, would people not know how to, I mean, with the HR person, you need someone to kind of pay the salary, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need someone to do the salary and manage all that kind of stuff, but couldn't that just be the the administrator? Couldn't you just have like one person, you know, uh, just putting the payroll and like digitizing it and making it automatic? Like, what what do you need the HR person for then? Like, it's, so so a lot of the time, I think a bullshit job is someone who is um, is is in a seat. Uh, a lot of the time, not really not really doing too much. You know, they may do like half an hour of work a day just to kind of keep things ticking over. But that mm. could be automated, or it could just be taken up taken on by someone else. Like, you could probably cut. Cut, you know, like each company that I've worked for that's bigger than a few employees, uh, you, you could just cut uh, out half the staff and you wouldn't even know that they were they were gone because the other people would just pick up the slack. So, yeah. And uh, like what David Graeber points out, and I believe you do too, is that people in bullshit jobs kind of like know in their heart of hearts that their job is bullshit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that kind of comes like to the definition of, of what a bullshit job is. And I think it's something that people feel uh, in, inside them, uh, you, that's one way of looking at it. One definition is, is that if you can, you can feel that, uh, something is not quite right, that what you're doing is not adding any purpose, purpose to society. It's not bringing any value to society. You can feel it. And it's actually like depressing. It, you, it brings you down because, you know, a lot of people say that to actually be a fulfilled person, you need to feel that you're bringing some kind of value to society. So if you are doing one of these bullshit jobs, you may be getting paid a lot of money. You may be, you know, bringing in 150k or something like that. But, if you know that 
Um, and, and maybe not. Maybe some people don't feel this way, you know, sociopaths or whatever, or they just really have found a way to just not care about, you know, what they do and what they bring to society. But I think a lot of people do feel it. And, and it, no amount of money can kind of uh, uh, compensate for, for that feeling of just being totally useless. Um, yeah, and the guilt that comes from making a lot of money, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, a nurse or uh, a, a bin man, a garbage man, or someone who's doing something that kind of brings a tangible end result every day, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, uh, is making, say, I don't know, uh, 40, 50K or whatever. I don't know. Maybe they make more nowadays. Versus someone who's, Something like that, probably, though. Yeah, versus someone who's doing nothing, you know, I guess the managerial feudalism, as you mentioned, someone who's doing nothing, they're just in this management position because they're part of this ruling class. Uh, and they've kind of had the, had the privilege to become part of this ruling class that doesn't have to, have to do anything. And, and calling them a VP of strategy is almost just like kind of a, a way of disguising <laughs> the fact that they've been put into this, uh, this uh, managerial position uh, that's just basically just the ruling class, the aristocracy mm. of old, I guess. Yeah. So, um, do you think that some of the like lower tier bullshit jobs, like I don't like marketing coordinator or just what you know, I mean the the, the jobs that end in like coordinator and specialist, and yeah. maybe some of the middle management management jobs. Do you think that those jobs that may or may not need to exist replaced some of the more like real jobs, like farmers and manufacturers yeah. and that sort of thing? Well, I, you know, that's a good question, right? Because. I don't know what the exact stat is, but I think it's something like 90% of people used to be farmers and now it's 2%. Yeah. So then we got to this point, and it, and it happened very quickly, right? So we got to this point where we had to kind of uh, figure out what to do with all this surplus mm-hmm. of, of people that weren't needed. And I guess the kind of utopian and idealistic uh, model, which uh, Graeber talks about and John Maynard Keynes talked about in the 30s um, with his essay in, in Praise of Idleness, I think he, I think he talked about it in other places as well. Uh, I think it was, was it Keynes who wrote in Praise of Idleness? I'm not sure. But um, um, what he was, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, I was asking if the if these new jobs kind of replaced older ones. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. So we had this surplus of people uh, and we had to figure out what to do with them. And and the Keynes' idea was that, okay, well, we don't have to work anymore because, you know, cavemen, uh, if you, there's, a, there's a story going around a few years ago about how they'd figured out that cavemen only worked 10 hours a week because all they had to do was find their food mm-hmm. and stuff. So he was saying that we could go back to, to that. We could just all kind of sit around and let the machines do the work, uh, you know, and, and uh, that's the kind of idealistic utopian idea of the fully automated luxury communism, I guess. We all just have this basic income um, and that we let the machines do the work and, and the small amount of people that want to do the work and that are skilled to do the work can do it, mm-hmm. right? So, but what happened instead of that um, was that we made up all these jobs um, like marketing coordinator just to... And I'm not saying like a conscious kind of conspiracy, but it just kind of happened. Uh, yeah. We made up all these jobs just to keep people busy. And, and Graeber says that it was the intention of it. It's kind of a political intention. Is to just if you've got people sitting around doing nothing, eventually they're going to revolt, and they, you know, the, the devil makes work for idle thumbs, right? It's just a way of keeping people busy so that they don't have the time and energy to think about um, what's going on. Um, they're just kind of kept busy by this this make work. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that a lot a lot of it is just. Uh, Creating uh, creating work for people to to keep them out of uh, trouble, basically. <laughs> yeah, you might not have an answer to this, and maybe we can kind of reason our way to it. But why do you think a profit driven company would pay for these kind of non productive jobs? Yeah, I mean it's fascinating, and so question. many people too. I mean, like the this 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 the last big corporation I worked for, the largest team was the HR team. Yeah. Well, that's I don't amazing. understand that. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And then, 
I honestly don't really know the answer. Like one of David Graeber's points he makes in the book Bullshit Jobs is that um, uh, an argument against the idea that bullshit jobs exist is that we have this intricate, intricate system because society is so complex. And we have, I mean, you know, and no one can deny that we've created an incredible society. You know, look at everything we have. And you know, mm-hmm. uh, the idea, the argument is that everything is so intricate that the bullshit job is just kind of a, a cog in the system that needs to be there. And if and if you didn't have it, then you wouldn't be able to have something else. Kind of like a knock on everything is kind of a knock on effect. Everything's interconnected in this way. Mm-hmm. So you can't call something a bullshit job because it exists for some kind of abstract, intangible reason uh, that helps us all to be here, right? So that's, I guess, that's one of the arguments. But to, to um, Whenever I think about, um, you know, why is a profit-generating company hiring people that don't have an impact on the bottom line? I think about, um, you know, as you mentioned, HR. Maybe that, maybe in that instance, it's uh, they, they've uh, maybe they think that this is the way to kind of uh, keep people productive. I'm just trying to think in, from their point of view, right? Like, what is it? But then when you get to uh, diversity and inclusion officer, mm-hmm. right? That, that's been a big one that's cropped up recently. The, mm-hmm. Companies have come, come out and said, you know, now we now need to have a diversity and inclusion officer. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure in some companies that's now a diversity and inclusion team. Like we need to have these teams of people who are, um, you know, making sure that we have uh, 50% of women in these managerial jobs. We need to have, uh, you know, this race, uh, right? So, so where's that coming from, right? Because that, that surely can't be to do with any kind of profit generation. I mean, their argument is is that you ha- if you have a diverse workforce that represents the consumer base, right? Um, and and that, their argument is is that that's what's going to ultimately in the end lead to profitability. And I don't know if they're right about that. Maybe they are. Maybe they figured out that that's what's going to help them in the long run, right? So they they always have an, a, a, a response to to this argument, I, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, but because it's they, their argument, I guess, would be that it's not as simple as just saying, well, you know, this guy is. Is is a sales guy that we hire, and he's calling up people, and he's making a sale uh, of our product, and this ultimately leads to making more money for the company. But I think they would argue it's just not as simple as that because everything's so complicated. That um, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Yeah, I, I I do wonder. Like it almost it's not really like a conspiracy, but it does feel like some lever puller at some point decided that corporate culture is super important and it is yeah. I, don't don't get me wrong like you don't want to work at a place that has a really shitty culture yeah and so and actually this was my area of study in, in university so i probably have read more on this than most people but uh you know the, the, back in the 30s you know there were these movements to make the workforce more than just a workforce and it, and it kind of metastasized into what is the like the diversity and inclusion and the, and the, mm. uh, just over the over focus on employee satisfaction that turns into an entire industry. Yeah. But God, that said, I mean, that's only looking at one particular industry. I don't want to get too revelatory of, of like what I do for work, but, uh, the company that I work for services a lot of the like big tech companies like Google and Facebook and stuff. I, and arguably Google and Amazon do provide a necessary service in the technological age. Um, or, or at the very least they provide uh, something that's better than what was before them. Like I would rather order something off Amazon than, than have to schlep down to Walmart. Yeah. Um, if I can wait a couple of days for it. But that being said, I mean, the, the Facebook, for instance, I mean, Facebook exists in order to let people advertise. Like if there were no ads on Facebook, then Facebook wouldn't be Facebook. Yeah. And 
while advertising is a is a good, I would say, a pro- probably a pretty good industry. Most of this, most of the crap that's being advertised on Facebook isn't. Um, like I, yeah. I, I don't know, I don't know how many how many scrub pads to clean my cast iron skillet I, I need to have in my face. I can just I can just get one. You yeah, I mean, like yeah, and I think it comes down to like culture because um, a lot of the times people will look at the the problem uh, and and the solution, I guess. And you got at some point you have to ask yourself, ask yourself. Um, what, well, how did it get to this point where the ad, because the thing about the advertisements is, is that the reason, if they exist, then they must be working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, otherwise the companies wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Um, you know, like a Super Bowl commercial is, you know, however many millions of dollars, right? And, and companies still pay for that commercial because it must work. Like, like we're kind of, you know, more, I guess we would consider ourselves probably slightly more intelligent than the average person who's walking around on the street. So, so when we look at the, a Super Bowl commercial, and we kind of see, you know, the, the car being advertised. We just think, I can't, I can't believe that they would pay three million dollars or whatever for that commercial because it's just it's not going to it's not going to have any kind of impact beyond just kind of I guess you know spreading the, the brand recognition or whatever. Mm. But it must work. And, I, and I've spoken to people who you know director of marketing or whatever, and they say, yeah, we we kind of uh, more and more we're, we're tracking the analytics of uh, this advert, and we 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 are seeing that it that it works. So there there must be you know tons and tons of people out there who who this all works on. So I guess going back to my point is that this, this culture is being shaped, I guess it's kind of a vicious cycle, right? Where if you, if you raise people to be consumers and, uh, you know, always want to go after the, the, the latest, uh, products and the line outs, line up outside for the iPhone 13 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you're just going to have this vicious cycle where that's kind of the, the culture is created around the way it becomes a more of a consumerist culture. And, uh, it just keeps going and, and until, you know, all you can do, I guess, is as a family in, within your own family, kind of try and break that cycle and tell your kids about consumerism and the, the fact that you're being tricked into buying these things. And I would recommend that everyone watches the Adam Curtis documentary, uh, Century of the Self. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but he, he kind of talks about, yeah, it's really good. It, it's on YouTube. Um, it breaks down kind of how consumerism came in. Um, you know, uh, Edward Bernays was the guy who in, invented uh, PR pretty much. That's simplification, but. He was Freud's, uh, I think, nephew, and he understood the psychology of people. And then he was kind of the uh, pioneer of what we have today with uh, advertising, marketing, figuring out how to trick people into buying stuff they don't need, basically. Um, and then we've just seen this kind of snowballing and steamrolling completely out of control. And, and I guess it all ties in with the bullshit jobs, right? Is that um, if, you, if you create this society where uh, these, these products are valued and, and these things are valued that aren't really making people happy. They're just making people more depressed. And uh, we've seen, I guess, uh, depression rates going up uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's just this snowball effect. Where it just seems to be just keep getting worse. Uh, materially, you know, things are always getting better. And I think if you can figure out how to kind of hack your way into happiness while having all this material wealth that we have, you can do very well in today's society. But yeah. unfortunately, I think a lot of people are not able to do that for whatever reason. And it's, and it's, uh, it's pretty sad to see. Yeah. You mentioned Edward Bernays, and that I guess that does kind of bring to mind um, another, yet another potential answer to my last question. Uh, I mean, maybe it really is just like these people have found a way to sell the diversity and inclusion industry yeah. to companies um, yeah. using Bernaysian tactics. Uh, and so, you know, the the um, 
the people who write these, who write the the white guilt, I forget, I can never remember her name, but yeah, I mean, they make billions of dollars just by giving yeah. talks at these companies, and then yeah. the CEOs all buy it, and so then they go and they disperse it to their companies, um, and maybe maybe it really is just just more and more advertising and and PR. Yeah, yeah, good point. And I read this article actually uh, a couple of months ago, and it was about it was kind of uh, the people who do the diversity and inclusion uh, consulting as freelancers. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how the whole industry works, and and they make a lot of money. They, okay. I think one, yeah, one one of the women was saying that you know I, I can make a hundred grand just by showing up and giving a talk on diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion, yeah. and it, and it is an industry now, um, and and uh, it, it's it, like you say, it is all really because uh, yeah, it, it's it's not really um, uh, it, it is just advertising. I agree with that. Yeah, and I'm not sure I to take it beyond that. So I guess I'll just leave that there. Yeah. But. One thing, uh, so there's a historian, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but his name is Thaddeus Russell. Um, yeah. And he talks, he talks about how sort of the Puritan, like the original Americans, uh, or, you know, the original American settlers anyway, um, brought over the Protestant work ethic to the continent. And that that is really what has shaped American culture, specifically like white American bourgeoisie culture. Right. Um, do you think that, so this idea that like labor in and of itself is inherently virtuous, mm. do you think that that has anything to do with with the rise of bullshit jobs as as more laborious jobs have kind of fallen by the wayside? Absolutely, yeah. I do think there's a, there's a huge hangover. There's a huge hangover where, you know, if my... Uh, if, if uh, I think of my wife's, you know, uh, parents who are in the seventies now, it, it, I think if uh, you know if their uh, kids, if, if my wife and the, her, her brothers had, had just said no, uh, you know, I figured out that I'm just going to kind of go and be a free spirit and you know not not get a job and stuff like that. I think they would have looked at it and been like, "What are you talking about? You know, what we do here is we work hard, we uh, we uh, you know we we grind it out, um, and, and we." And I think that it, I think there is a hangover effect where. Back in those days, when they, you know people were moving moving over here, there was more than enough work to go around, and and you had to pitch in, you had to work hard. But nowadays, uh, you know, you can kind of just uh, coast by, and if you don't contribute, you're not really going to uh, suffer that much. Like you'll be looked right. after and everything. Um, and and it just seemed to be some kind of a friction um, between this generation that's exiting, I guess, um, st- still kind of uh, thinking that we have to be, you know. Work hard working and virtuous, and now there's our generation. We've kind of because we understand how kind of how the internet works, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and all that kind of stuff, and we understand that a lot of the work that's being doing is bullshit because we're in the in the workforce and we kind of see it firsthand. Um, it, we we kind of have a different perspective on it, yeah. So there just seems to be some friction there. Yeah, yeah. Um, generationally speaking, I, I'm I'm kind of on the older end of the millennial spectrum. And you're kind of in the middle, I think. You said you were in university in 08, so... Yeah, I'm 34, so... Yeah, so you're like in your mid-30s. And then my my partner is on the younger end of the millennial spectrum. Um, And I've noticed that he specifically is uh, very down on on this sort of consumerist culture, I guess is is a a good word for it. Uh, Like he, right now, we both got laid off on the same day last year. And, you know, I being a good little, a good little work boy, went straight back to work. Like I got a job within weeks um, and he's mm. still, you know, enjoying the benefits of unemployment. Right. Uh, so, and, and, you know, I, how can I possibly judge that? I mean, he's living, he's living, he's living a great life, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's on the back of, of uh, taxpayers and particularly the, the, the employer's unemployment insurance, but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, 
Yeah, and I don't want. I don't want. Is that is that is is that something that's that's pretty common among the younger the younger set, whether mid thirties or late twenties or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems to be. You know, we're hearing all this stuff at the moment about how McDonald's can't find people. And uh, yeah. uh, I was talking to someone yesterday who works for the, the the revenue agency in Canada, and he was saying that you cannot find people to fill sixty thousand dollar jobs. And, and all you need is a high school uh, um, diploma, yeah. and, and and it's sixty grand. You can just walk straight in. You know, government jobs in Canada are pretty cushy. If you get in with the government in Canada, you're wow. sorted for life. Um, but they they don't want to do it for some reason. And and we we do have like a soft UBI in Canada now. Like they introduced uh, two two thousand dollars a month um, with the COVID stuff that that came in. Mm-hmm. They said, right, we're going to give you all two thousand dollars a month now. If you don't want to work, you can just have this money. So then, when McDonald's and stuff started to open back up, they couldn't they can't find people because obviously you know a rational person. He's not going to go and work for McDonald's for fifteen hundred bucks a month, you know, working shifts there. They'll just take the two thousand, and yeah. I, I think they've just kind of kept this thing going. They they ended the emergency two thousand dollars, and I think I may be wrong about this, but they I think they kind of just transitioned it to an ongoing thing now, where you can just keep collecting this for the uh, unforeseeable future. And it is kind of like they bought UBI in without really uh, making it clear. They've just kind of done it, um, and, and you know, I don't want to comment on whether that is a. Uh, Good thing or a bad thing too much. I mean, ultimately, I think it's going to end in disaster. But yeah, uh, but Maybe. yeah, I mean, so so good. To, sorry, just to say about the uh, your partner and the unemployment. Like, uh, I, I would never judge anyone for what they do, but if he if he's happy like uh, doing that, you know, for the long term, and he, and he's able to fill his days and find some kind of purpose, uh, I, I do kind of. Uh, I'm not. I don't, I don't know how I feel about someone kind of you know get, taking money from the state. Uh, just because they don't want to work or contribute in any way. Like he, uh, if he maybe if he finds some way to add some value uh, to people's lives, it's yeah. maybe some kind of a hack. But I, I don't know, man. It's uh, that's it's tough. Uh, that's kind of the thing. And also, you talk about that a little bit, and uh, or or maybe it's the primary purpose of why you wrote this sort of uh, summation and little add-on to David Graeber's bullshit jobs thesis. Um, yeah, you talk you talk a lot about going rogue. Can you can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, well, that's okay. So let me just tell you what um, I meant by that at the time. Is I actually uh, found a job. Well, I got a job with a technology, big global technology company mm-hmm. um, that I got through someone who I used to work with in London because she moved to Canada as well. Um, so she kind of got me in a, in a copywriting job there. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. Um, it was a work for me. It was always remote. Um, this was about mm-hmm. seven years ago when I started, but it started off as a remote job. And... And for the first year, I was very honest. I was kind of, you know, going out of my way to, um, uh, you know, do as much work as I possibly could, add as much value as I possibly could. Um, and then she went on maternity leave, and I was given this other boss who didn't kind of have the kind of same vigor and mentality of, you know, doing things and being productive. Uh, and then I kind of got introduced to other people and met people in the company. And, I, and, I, and it dawned on me that it was a, everyone was just realized, everyone had realized that they'd found this hiding place within this company. And it was this whole, because a lot of them, even before this COVID stuff, were already kind of working remote and they mm-hmm. had this whole culture where you could just work from home. And uh, a lot of them had already realized that if, you know, if you just kind of join the conference calls and, uh, um, you know, sh- sh- say what you need to say and, and uh, do a little bit of work here and there, you can kind of just hide and, and fall through the cracks. So I realized that uh, I could do this. And I started kind of slowly, slowly backing away from the job and thinking, what could I actually get away with here? Like, let's do a little bit of an experiment and see what I can actually get away with. And it got to the point where I was going 
I'm kind of uh, exposing myself a little bit here, but I got to the point where I was just for months on end just doing nothing for this company. Oh, wow. And, and I was getting paid like a salary. And no, like, I'd, I'd, and I kept it going for like a good three or four years before the, I, was, I was on a contract. So eventually they just said, no, we're not going to renew this contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they didn't say, you know, it wasn't, it, they didn't say it because I wasn't doing anything. I think it was just they kind of had this crackdown on hiring contractors. So it was just kind of unfortunate. <laughs> But but I will say that I did do a lot during that time. You know, I, I wrote a, a novella that I was really proud of, and uh, I wrote a lot of articles, including that one that you know all the ones that you read, I guess, back, back in that time, like 2017, 2018. And I, and I just made myself productive. I got in shape, and uh, I read hundreds of books. That was kind of, and I, I found that that having that that few years of time, uh, just to kind of not have to work but get paid for it by this company. Uh, was was incredible. It changed my life because I was able to kind of have all this spare time just to to read and educate myself and work on my, myself physically. So so going rogue in my case was was that it was just backing away from this company that and I didn't feel guilty because um, it, it's a it's a company that is you know making uh, billions of dollars all over the world um, and my my obviously salary was a drop in the ocean of, of what, what what they would be making. Right. And and the reason, I guess another reason I didn't feel guilty, and you know, that's I'm not saying that's a, a good excuse, but the, the other reason I didn't feel guilty, guilty was um, it wasn't my responsibility really to manage uh, myself. And what I mean by that is that I wasn't, if I was given work, I'm an honest guy, right? If I, if I was given work to do and I was given, you know, a whole plan and I was given kind of uh, deadlines and, and a real kind of uh, project and a mission. I would do it with, like, I would, I would do it, and that's what I do now. I work very hard, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in, in my freelance life. But I wasn't being given any kind of direction. I, I kind of just been left by the wayside by this company. So I just sort of screw, screw there. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep taking the money because if I if I quit and go and work for someone else, then um, I'll have to do all this work, uh, and I won't be able to do all this reading and this writing in my, in my own time. So I'll just do this for for a while. You know, but I will say that eventually you, you do feel guilty in, in a way because, like what I was saying earlier, you, you, you start to feel like you're not making any kind of contribution to society in it, and it's, uh, it affects your uh, confidence, uh, your self-esteem. Right. Um, and, and that's ultimately, I think, why when that job ended, I thought, right, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm actually going to go and um, you know, work hard and uh, make a contribution, and I'm not going to accept another job from a, a big company. I'm not going to go and work for a big company again. You know, I tried working for a startup for a while and, and it didn't really work out. Um, but I, and I just, uh, I guess, uh, a year ago or whatever, maybe less than that, uh, earlier on this year, I think I just committed myself to, I'm just going to be a freelancer now because I figured out that this is the only way that works for me. You know, not really having a boss who's expecting me to be on calls that I don't need to be on um, and, and stuff like that. So that's just, I just figured out that was, that was what worked. And that for me, that was like going rogue from the system. Um, and, and going rogue from this whole kind of bullshit, and and, I, and I'm helping people every day now. You know, I'm uh, I'm helping them get jobs and uh, and stuff like that. And um, it, it feels good. Like I, I feel the happiest I've ever felt uh, now that I've really established myself as a freelancer. I have confidence. I have self esteem, mm-hmm. uh, and everything's going great. I'm, and I'm actually making more money than I've ever made as well. Which is oh, that's thing. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I I ask every person who is either a freelancer or coaches freelancers, um, how do you find clients? Yeah, well, I mean, from uh, yeah, it's so. I guess a lot of the time it does just come from applying for jobs. Like you can search oh, uh, okay. freelance on on LinkedIn or whatever or, yeah. or whatever you know uh, Craigslist. Uh, search for freelance writer, and and people do post for jobs. And and you know it will be uh, 
you know, you do get freelance jobs where it's just kind of a one-off thing and, and a lot of people will allow themselves uh, to be exploited. Like they'll go on Fiverr or, uh, you know, these job sites where you get paid, you know, 10 bucks for doing three hours work or something like that. They'll, mm-hmm. allow, they'll allow themselves to be exploited. But if you kind of, uh, if you prove yourself a lot of money um, and, and you can you can find work that just kind of keeps keeps coming right, with the same clients. So if you, really all you need to do is get two or three clients, um, you know, who give you regular work and that's it. It's like having a full-time job. Uh, sometimes it's like more than having a freelance job. You have to turn people away. Uh, but I, I would say that you kind of have to prove yourself first before you can really establish yourself. But you have to show that you can uh, do do a good job, and you have to send them samples and say this is uh, this is what I can do, uh, and then they'll they'll pay you well. Uh, and that's how I did it. And it took quite a while. And I did uh, think that I would never. I, I did think you know that I would never really be able to establish myself as a freelancer, and I kept giving my, myself away to these companies. Um, and yeah, then eventually I just felt that I was able to do it and I did it. That's awesome. Congratulations to you on that. Uh, I know that that's kind of the dream for everybody or not everybody, but a lot of people. So back to back to bullshit jobs for a minute. You, you implied in this piece that bullshit jobs might be contributing to like all of the societal ills that we're seeing, just like everything from outrage culture to, I mean, you wrote it, you mm. wrote it well before COVID, but um, this sort of like authoritarian conformity and compliance culture that um, yeah. has, has, you know, it's been going on for, you know, the better part of a decade, but uh, you know, now it's even, it's just insane. Do you, mm. do you still think that's the case? Um, or do, did you think it yeah. was the case at the time? Or were you really just asking the question? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I look at it as like, uh, where does all this social justice stuff come from? And, you know, all this uh, stuff that's going on, uh, a lot of it, people, you know, people have said comes from just, People having too much time on their hands. Like if you're, you know, working twelve hours a day, you know, getting the putting the a spade in, uh, in the dirt, um, you're not going to have time to think about, uh, you know, whether you want to be transgendered or not. And I'm not saying that to kind of delegitimize transgenderism, but when you see a, an article that says there's been a four thousand percent increase in transgender transgenderism, it kind of just makes you wonder, like, uh, was that always there, or uh, have we just got too much time on our hands to think yeah. about these things? Um, so <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that uh, um, I've, I've forgotten your question again because I go up on the tangent. But. Uh, bullshit jobs contributing to other other things, like yeah, which I think you're right. if people go ahead, I think that if people had jobs to do, they wouldn't have time to think about the, these things. And I think that I think that there is enough. I'm, I'm quite optimistic on this. Is that I think there is enough work to go around for people. Like I think if we somehow manage to figure out a way to shape the culture where people were doing work that was uh, valuable and, and meaningful. Like, I think we could figure out a way to give everyone a job. Like, because the way I look at it is how good could we actually make this world and this society? Like, it, it could be utterly incredible, couldn't it? Like, if, and one example I've given a few times is if you think about Ikea and the way that they make, um, and this is a bit of a bougie example, but if you think about the way they make Still. kind of, uh, you know, the MDF kind of coffee tables and stuff like that, what if we had, um, thousands and thousands of people going out and making oak coffee tables. Because if you want to buy an oak coffee table, then it, it's, what is it, like a thousand bucks or something like that, right? Yeah, at um, least. But if we had, like, yeah, and but if we had uh, thousands and thousands of people going in to make oak coffee tables and being taught how to do it, then it would be the same price as an, an MDF table from Ikea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I may be, like, simplifying, oversimplifying, you know, do we have enough oak and stuff like that? I don't know. But uh, my, my, my basic uh, idea is that... Um, my point is that we, we could somehow reorient our priorities. 
because because I look at it as like a misallocation of resources. Like if you think about McDonald's, like why why does everyone eat McDonald's when they know it's bad for you? Why does everyone drink Coca-Cola when they know it's bad for you? It's just because we kind of set up the system this way, where and I'm not and I'm not suggesting we should have like any kind of re- regulation or uh, legislation on on Coca-Cola or McDonald's necessarily. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying like what do people why why do people value these things? I mean I know the answer is because people like salt and fat. Like we're just white biologically like salt and fat, but can't we just shape the culture in a way where we don't do those things? Because if you go to Italy or something like that, uh, or France, they, they don't go around eating McDonald's and Coca-Cola all the mm-hmm. time. They, they, their cuisine, right? And they, they have kind of preserved that culture. They haven't allowed the consumerism to take over their cultures and just completely trash their uh, value systems. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so I, yeah, I just look at it like it, it's value. It's the value system and the, the culture and the way that people are kind of. Uh, Operating in society, I guess. Yeah. We we saw we saw kind of a um, a resurgence of of artisanal things like that. I guess it's still ongoing, but you know, I mean, yeah. about ten years ago when the hipster culture was a thing, yeah, like everybody was making craft beer or yeah, uh, you know, carving wooden knives or whatever. And you know, during COVID, everybody started a garden and everybody was making sour sourdough bread and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you know that 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 desire kind of lives in the hearts of people, and not just not just like libertarians or agorists or whatever, but also, I mean, like the the <laughs> the, the the chief whatever officer of the company I work for is a mm. lesbian from Brooklyn. And yeah. during COVID she and her wife bought a house in like upstate New York. Um, and she, she like learned how to install a dishwasher and like they're, yeah. they're doing all of these crazy rural things that an urban lesbian couple would not even think about doing 10 years ago. So yeah. like it's happening. It kind of is. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, and it's a really interesting point that you make, right? Because I do find a lot of the time that people who are in these jobs, like VP strategies, stuff like that, they have this like interesting hobby that they do on the mm-hmm. side, like that that they do, they you know they they paint or they do something interesting. Yeah. And and one thing I think is, and you know, I guess I'm saying this from personal experience as well, is that um, just imagine if all those people were able to do that full time, um, how good they would be, like how much art, because we don't really have. Uh, much great art in our culture, I feel nowadays, mm, yeah. and I think that is a direct result of the, the way that we've we've ordered things. And just think how much better the art would be if we didn't have all these jobs um, that people were kind of being kept busy, all their energy is being sucked up by these jobs. Mm. And, and uh, you know, as soon as you, uh, I remember one tweet that said, as soon as you start picking the corporate cotton, that, like your creative creativity is completely sucked, sucked out of you. Yeah, like you can't really, you can't become a master at that thing. Uh, because and and that and you know when you look at uh, the starving artist right the, the stereotype the archetype of the starving artist that is someone who's I guess said you know I'm not going to get this job because I'm really committed to becoming uh, a master and, and a great at this thing and then we you know one percent of people will actually make it and they'll become successful artists or whatever whatever they do and the ninety nine percent of people will either eventually sell out or give up or get a job and all they'll just continue to be you know starving artists I guess. Um, and and uh, um, uh, and uh, yeah, the hipster thing is really interesting that you made that point because that, that was a thing, right? And I think even back then, I could sense that it was it was not real. It, it the, the desire was there, but yeah, that it was not real because those people were still going to do those jobs, right? They were still going to be marketing specialists and stuff like that. Yeah. And I and I and, and I can't blame them for that because they just did what they had to do to survive in the machine that we have, right? They, they just did what they had to do to be able to 
you know, provide for their families or whatever, or, you know, make a living that helped them to be comfortable. They were just doing what they had to do. They didn't want to give up their entire um, comfort and well-being to, to become a starving artist. They just wanted to be a little bit creative and, and, and uh, I guess, uh, carry out, follow, uh, execute on that um, creative urge a little bit, that creative instinct that I think everyone has mm. in, in some way. Um, and then, yeah, with the COVID stuff, we definitely saw it. Um, we definitely saw it kind of uh, re-emerge again uh, in interesting ways. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sh- I'm, I am definitely more pessimistic, I think, on, on what, what that was. I think that was more just something akin to what happened with the hipster thing. But, but, but do you think it was a, a development that is going to continue and really st- kind of... Uh... Oh, I don't know. I mean, like you said, I think that this is something that's inherent in sort of the state of humanity. Like, I, I think that mm-hmm. everyone will... Everyone has this sort of need to find their muse, I guess. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, no, nobody, nobody, like in the history of in the history of ever, has found work fulfilling. Like that, that's just mm. not a that's just not one of the that's not one of the purposes of work. Like, sure, you've got the four hour work week where you know you're you're only doing you're only doing the unfulfilling stuff for four hours, and the rest of the stuff that makes you money is doesn't feel like work. Um, but I, I yeah. think I think that's the exception and not the rule. Uh, I, I do I do I do hope that I do hope that you're right. I and and that your vision kind of comes to pass uh, at least maybe a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know what? It will take, it'll take a huge culture change. That's that's one thing. I mean, especially here in the states. I mean, the, the whole purpose of yeah. of an HR department, for instance, is for. I mean, yeah, there's some there's some make work stuff. Uh, there, you know, there's no reason there needs to be someone like an event planner at the, at the corporate headquarters who puts together the office potlucks every month or whatever. Um, mm. but you know, I mean, if everyone's taking everyone to court, then there has to be someone to, uh, fight those cases, I guess. So yeah. it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, like a Jenga, like a Jenga block, um, of, of things. And if you pull one, you just pull out the wrong block, then everything crumbles. At least, yeah. at least for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, but I think we are going to see some interesting changes. I can't wait to see what happens in the next five, ten years with regards to kind of the work, the nature of work. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're hearing about all this stuff. Um, some countries, I think, are moving to the four-day work week, you know, whatever that means. And then um, some countries, uh, I think, are going to have this UBI. Um, mm-hmm. And and but, but I do think that uh, I want to make it clear that I think that the UBI is... Uh, and that, you know any like shortening of the work week, I think it is kind of a band aid on the problem. I think that it's kind yeah, of a, totally. a government solution to a problem um, that is really needs to be addressed in more you know more meaningful discussions like the one we're having now. Right? Well, and, and, not just a, and not just a band aid, but like putting a band aid over an already infected wound, um, which just yeah. makes it fester. I mean, it's the the UBI thing is is such a huge threat that like it could cause societal collapse. It's not just, it's not just, you know, yeah. oh, people aren't going to go to work because they, cause they, you know, get their $2,000 a month or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's like people aren't going to go to work and there won't be work to go to. Uh, and, yeah. and that, and that brings, that brings in the whole implications of like, you know, well, if there's no, if there's no work, then there's no tax revenue. And if there's no tax revenue, how do you pay people with their UBI? Well, you have to print the money. And if you're printing the yeah. money, you know where that leads. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, really scary kind of slippery slope. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's fascinating. And this, this, with the COVID stuff, you know, the, the acceleration that, that that's what it on, you know, and whether, um, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, um, 
Oh, get conspiratorial. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with the COVID stuff coming in and kind of everything happening at the same time, like they bought the UBI in straight away. They didn't hesitate. They just did yeah. it. Yeah. And it, you know, it just makes you wonder, like any kind of uh, um, thoughtful person is going to be thinking, well, how, how come all this stuff is just happening at the same time? Like, yeah. It just feels like a lever has been pulled um, and, and it, you know, it was cranked and they, they bought it all in. And, and this seems now, you know, more and more like there's just not going to be any going back from from this it's it's just here now it's a new normal as they call it they've, they've been pretty brazen about it they're not hiding the fact that um you know uh this is the future right uh, if you, you know this is the the great reset um mm. and uh, uh yeah it's it's uh we're gonna have to wait and see what happens right like it, it's it's unpredictable we don't know we don't know what's going to happen. Like it may, it may all collapse. It may just kind of, they may just kind of keep it going. You know, printing the money, the, the number goes up, the line keeps going up. It may just be an yeah. indefinite thing that they can just manage and control, uh, and and that we just keep becoming more kind of uh, suffocated by this this technological technological system, um, and that we, we it's just an indefinite thing that just keeps going on, and we we've, we've just continued more and more to feel like we're living in this very comfortable nightmare. Oh, I, I, I like to say, I like to <laughs> yeah. call it. Yeah. Do you, do you have any tangible like tactics or strategies that individuals can take in order to um, try to optimize their life uh, in the face of this sort of collective nightmare? I mm. guess. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, I think partially it depends on where you are geographically, um, because okay. I think that someone who is, uh, you know, in in the state in the states, uh, I can. I don't know. Because I'm, uh, it's hard to say, but I think that where I am, it's a little bit more difficult because I feel almost like I'm in enemy territory in here mm-hmm. in Ontario. You know, everyone is walking around with a mask on. No one is really questioning it publicly, at least yeah. anyway. Um, everyone is kind of, um, you know, going to their job and, you know, if they lose one bullshit job, they'll, they'll just go and get another one and everyone just kind of keeps going along with the whole charade because it's so comfortable you know the living standards are nice here everyone's everything's good it's a, you know, it's nice and easy they'll just keep it going like there's not much courage or not much questioning um so so i think what i've done in my personal situation is just kind of uh <sighs> extract myself from the, the news media and the canadian i don't follow any kind of news i think that's a big step to take is just to kind of uh extract yourself from from that psychological uh torture that is uh um put down on, on the people um, and then I, I extracted myself from the city of Toronto, uh, and you know the, the way that was the, the city. Uh, I used to like living in the city when I was younger, and then it just dawned on me how, how me horrible it was being like a rat. And then when moved did you, out. When did to, you move you know, out of the city? A couple of years ago, I bought a house okay. uh, out in a, another. It's a city, but it's like a small city sure. uh, east of Toronto, and it's it's so my living standards have just been in every conceivable way have improved. Uh, I have like a backyard with a vegetable garden and. Uh, uh, I have a son now, um, I, and I just kind of uh, keep my circle small. I have a small group of friends, and uh, you know we talk about stuff like conspiracy theories. And uh, uh, I, see, I see family. I, I you know I try my best not to get in arguments with people and just have like a good time and stuff like that. Um, and and uh, you know work we've already talked about. Uh, and I've just kind of hacked my way into this situation that I'm somewhat happy with, I guess. Um, and and that that's really. Uh, I guess my uh, my way of looking at it is is that just figure out what makes you happy, um, mm-hmm. and then just keep striving after it. Like work hard to get towards that point where you can uh, feel comfortable as possible within this system that it seems to be somewhat kind of uh, uh, malevolently 
going after our well-being in, in this weird way. Um, you have to just keep kind of adapting and shape-shifting and, and extracting yourself from that, that system. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't want to do that because they like the comfort and the safety that comes with just kind of uh, giving yourself over to this kind of nanny state. Yeah. Well, that's just not who I am and it's never who I'll be. And uh, that's how I've had to adapt, adapt to it. You know, I've been talking to my wife, you know, shall we just move to Costa Rica or something like that and just kind of get away from all these COVID restrictions and stuff. But That'd be nice. It's just such an extreme solution, right? Like uh, she has family here and uh, I don't know. So uh, yeah, for, for, other, for other people, it's going to be different things. But I think ultimately what I'm trying to say is that you have to be true to, you know, yourself and what makes you happy mm. and don't give yourself over to um, what, what they're trying to tell you and what they're trying to make you do. Um, I'm not sure if you agree with that. Yeah, I've been I've been a complete city boy my entire life. I grew up in a huge city, Dallas, not not in the suburbs of Dallas, but like right in Dallas. Uh, and I've lived in Minneapolis for eleven years. Um, and like I've I have always loved living in the city. My and my dad does too. And that that, that might be my upbringing. Like just uh, he always he always joked that he would get nosebleeds up in the suburbs. Um, mm. And you know I I watched as. After the after the murder of George Floyd last year, I watched Minneapolis burn, and I still I was mm. like, you know, I don't like cops either. You know, fuck them. Uh, I, I'm I totally get it. Like I might not agree with their tactics, but I understand why they're doing it and all that stuff. And it wasn't until it wasn't until this year the governor of Minneapolis of Minnesota lifted the mask mandate, but the mayor of Minneapolis left ours in place, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I have to get the hell out of the city. I don't right. know what I don't know why that was it and why it took so why it took so long, but like now yeah. I'm really only looking for houses uh, outside of the city. So um, I yeah. guess you know it, it, it. There's always that catalyst. Uh, yeah, and it's I, interesting, right? You have a breaking you had a breaking point, and, yeah. and for me, I definitely feel like I'm approaching some kind of breaking point. Like uh, I was speaking to you before about the vaccine. There's a vaccine passport coming out in Ontario on the 22nd of September, yeah. uh, and we're going to have to wait and see like how that's enforced, uh, and you know like. What, what it does to society, we have Justin Trudeau who's very clearly become some, become some kind of dangerous loss in Canadian society with, uh, and he's you know intentionally dividing people, he's making no uh, illusions that that's, that's what his objective is mm-hmm. um, and, and I do feel like there's some kind of a breaking point coming up and, and uh, I think I'll know uh, with the mask thing it's kind of been interesting right because uh, I've been walking into grocery stores without masks on and, and no one says anything to me yeah. uh, I've, I've never really worn the mask for more than a few seconds and, and no one really says anything so that wasn't my breaking point. Uh, so yeah, but I, th- I feel like uh, if my son, if they're still wearing the mask when my son has to start school and they try and make him wear a mask. Uh, oh man. I've already said to myself that I'll never allow that to happen. And uh, yeah. yeah, if they won't let him not wear a mask, then I won't. I just won't do it. I'll, I'll, I'll be gone. So we'll have to wait and see if there's a breaking point. I don't know yet. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, are there any uh, closing thoughts before we before we start closing out? Uh. I don't think so. I think you've, you know, asked some great questions. Uh, I will say about this, uh, yeah, the bullshit job stuff. You know, it's it's cool that you want to talk about this, but it's not really something that's been on the top of my mind. I guess uh, I, I wrote about it a few years ago, and mm. uh, yeah, um, and and but it, but it's I do still remember you know a lot of that and reading about it and stuff, um, and uh, it's certainly interesting. And I hope that people will. I hope that like you know if, if one person kind of uh, is, is if this is a new topic to one person and they. And they're like, oh, well, this is interesting. I didn't really think about it this way, but I know that I'm in a bullshit job. Um, and and this kind of gives me a new perspective and, and thoughts on kind of working towards getting out of it. But, and now I'm going to have this goal of, you know, moving away from this this thing that really demeans me and makes me feel terrible, uh, uh, damages my self-esteem, damages my confidence, and I'm going to kind of uh, take my life by the scruff of the neck and, and try and sort this out. 
so if that can if I can do that to one person, then that's that's great. <laughs> um, cool. But yeah, I've definitely been thinking about the COVID stuff a lot more this past year and writing about that. Uh, where where else are you writing other than Hacker Noon, which I'll definitely link to, and and just wherever else people can find you if uh, if you'd yeah. like to give your social links or anything like that. Yeah, to be honest with you, uh, I'm not. I don't like promote myself too much, but you can put my uh, my Twitter account up there if you want, because okay. that's I, I, anything I write, I just post it there. Um, just just to kind of, I guess it's good to have kind of like just like a repository of stuff you write. But I do have like a blog that that I sometimes do if I feel like writing something and like a new, uh, yeah, and media, I've written some stuff, and then. I guess like a couple of magazines and stuff. Uh, I've done I've done some uh, contributions, but I don't write as much as I used to. Unfortunately, I do, I do like for, for the hobby side of things. I do want to get back into it um, more when I can. I've, having a kid and stuff and having a busy job makes it difficult. Yeah, I guess it goes back to everything we've been talking about, right? <laughs> um, I, yeah, it is something I want to get back more back into. But yeah, you can. I guess you can follow me on there. Yeah, on, on Twitter mainly. All right, great. And that's just Adam at Adam Winfield. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Adam. I'll make sure to drop a few links. I we didn't get to we didn't get to get into the small sold bug men, so I'm definitely going to link to that article because it's fantastic, uh, <laughs> and I highly recommend everybody check you out. Um, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, awesome. Thanks very much, man. Appreciate it. Good talking to you. All right. See ya. Cheers. Bye bye. All right. Thanks again to Adam for joining me today, and thanks to you as always for tuning in. Don't forget, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up with your email address to get an alert every single time that I release either a podcast episode or a piece of written content. And if you would like to get these interviews very early, usually about a week early, but I mean, this interview with Adam, I recorded back on September 12th. So it's been a hot minute. The people in my premium feed got to hear it on September 12th. If you'd like to get early episodes that include the full unedited interview, along with pre-show conversations between me and the guests where we kind of just get to know each other, Send me $7 a month or $70 a year and I will get you hooked up with the premium feed. That will also include premium written content as that is released. Thanks again for tuning in and thanks again for subscribing however you choose to subscribe. And I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free.